me ask you a question. What does it mean to be the greatest? I'm not being rhetorical. I'm actually I'm looking for answers today. I'm playing gym today. All right. What does it mean to be the greatest? It means to be the best. The best. Right. Yeah. To be first. To be ultimate. None better. Right. The greatest. I'm the greatest. Right. For Muhammad Ali, that meant to be the greatest fighter. Right. Ayn Rand, she thought she was the greatest philosopher of the 20th century. In fact, she thought she was the greatest philosopher since Aristotle. She's very wrong, but nevertheless, that's what she thought. Every little boy that picks up a baseball thinks that he's the greatest player ever, right? doesn't matter how many times he strikes out, it does, he's, he's the greatest, right? I mean, Kenny Rogers even wrote a song about it. Right? I mean, what's with this desire to be the greatest? What is it about us that we want to be the greatest? And it's funny because when we watch people who want to be the greatest, when we look at them from the outside at them, the harder that they try to be the greatest, the more they prove themselves not to be, right? The more they brag about the fact that they are the greatest, the more you think, you know what, you're a fool. You're not the greatest. You're clearly not the greatest. And the more they reason for why they're the greatest, the more they prove themselves to be ignorant and completely incapable of being the greatest. It's like the harder you try, the more impossible. I mean, you just look dumb. You look arrogant. You look like an idiot. You just need to shut your mouth, right? But nevertheless, despite our recognition, when we look at other people and we see, you know what, <laughs> this pursuit of greatness is crazy, you're, you're, you're a fool, we still do the same things ourselves. We still have our own foolish pursuits of greatness. We still try to find something, however small, however insignificant or inconsequential that thing might really be, we try to be the greatest at it. Maybe for you it's, uh, you know, I want to be the best in my class. Or, you know, I want to be the greatest, I, I don't know, World of Warcraft player ever. I, you know, I, I, I want to I be able to do this little, one little thing at at my job better than anyone else. I mean, we do it all the time. We do it with hobbies. We do it with games. We do it with our knowledge of useless trivia information. I mean, you name it. Unless you're going on Jeopardy, that's not going to serve you at all, you know? Uh, but it's crazy. And we know that it's crazy. I mean, we look at it, we're just like, you know what? That is so crazy. But yet we do it all the time. We still find some way where we strive to be first. We strive to be greatest. We strive to be best. Or at least better than you, right? I at least want to be better than you. And if I can't be, I'm going to go find a little group that I can get in where I can excel, right? My little niche, uh, like the magic players over at, uh, at Parkland in that one little common area. You know what I'm talking about? It's just, you know, like, I, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. But we do it. It doesn't matter how ridiculous, it doesn't matter how juvenile our pursuits might be. We do it. And, and sometimes we're willing to sacrifice everything in that pursuit of greatness. Sometimes we might look at people and we think, oh, that's a worthy pursuit. But it, most of the time, even though that's admirable in some respects, it's, it's a disappointment in a lot of others. I mean, think about Michael Jordan. I love Michael Jordan. I do think he's the greatest. But look at what he sacrificed to get there. We look at his relationships and all the toil. I mean, it's just, it's nuts. You might be here and you might be thinking, you know what? I, I don't think I have to be the greatest. I don't think that I have to be the first. I don't think that I have to be the best. But let me ask you this. How many times do you put yourself first in daily life? Just in little things. First in line. Try to be first to be recognized. 
right? You, you consider yourself to be the greatest in your own mind. Maybe you don't say it out loud or whatever, but you still, you've got pride, right? Everyone has pride, so you think you're greatest, right? Or you, you try to be the best at, at, at something. But like the Highlander says, there can be only one. There's only one greatest, right? I don't write, I'm not, that's like not a, a condolence for those movies, but you know, it's a, it's a catchphrase and it works. Um, but here's the thing. Jesus is first. Jesus is the best. Jesus is the greatest. And not just because of who he is, but also because of what he has done. He proved himself to be first. And he did it by becoming last. By becoming a servant to all. And in order for us to follow the greatest, we must do the same. Okay? So that's the direction we're going today. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We're looking at verses 30 through 37. That's page 845 in the Bibles there in the chairs. I encourage you to follow along. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. They, that's Jesus and his disciples, went on from there, just um, Caesarea Philippi, and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In God's eyes, the greatest is a servant. Okay? Before we can look at what that means for us, we must first look at the greatest servant. So Jesus and his disciples, they're on this missionary journey. They've been going out away from the Jews into Gentile territory. They most recently they've been in the villages surrounding Caesarea Philippi, a very Gentile dominant area, and as they were going, Jesus had this priority of teaching his disciples of what it means to follow him. He's, he's been teaching for over a year now, and he's kind of changed his MO. Before he was, he was going to synagogues, he was teaching from the Old Testament of the things concerning himself, but then as these, these huge crowds of Jews began to, to follow him around, but really not, not follow him as a disciple, he, he then turns his attention towards the Gentiles going out to them. But even there, like not teaching in the same way that he was before, speaking in parables, doing all these things, but focusing a lot of his attention on his disciples. It was on this trip that Peter's eyes were opened by the grace of God so that he could recognize that Jesus was the Christ. The one whom God had promised would come and deliver his people and would rule over them as king. Peter and the others, they had all sorts of hopes and expectations for what that meant for them. To them, the Christ meant one thing and they were very wrong. And and they're going to find out that it's not going to happen according to plan, according to the way they would want to see that work out. And now that they see, in part, that Jesus is the Christ, his, his agenda has changed. They recognize who I am. 
Now I need to show them what that means. What does it actually mean? Why did I come? What is the purpose of the Christ? And what does it mean to follow the Christ? He said back in chapter 8, verse 31, that the Christ must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. If they were to follow Him, it would mean that they would have to deny themselves, that they would have to take up the cross, that instrument of suffering and salvation that He has purposed for them, and they would have to follow Him. To save their life, they must be willing to lose it. And whoever loses their lives for His sake, for the Gospel's sake, it is those who will save it. It was on this missionary journey and this this teaching trip that Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. They were able to bear witness to the glory and the greatness of the Son of God as they fell to the ground, trembling as they gazed up at His radiant, pre-existent glory. They were stunned and amazed and terrified and bewildered as they stood before Him in all His glory, seeing Him for what He truly is. But Jesus didn't stay up on that mountain, did He? He came down. He entered the chaos. He, he showed Himself, though He is the Son of God, revealing His glory to them. He showed Himself to be a servant by coming down. And He displayed that in healing this little boy with this mute and deaf spirit. Jesus, the Son of God, is a servant. And from there, He and His disciples made their way from Caesarea Philippi back into this Jewish region of Galilee. And it says there in verse 30 that he didn't want anyone to know. He didn't want anyone to know that he was there. Now you may be wondering why, but but he tells us right there in, in verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples. Jesus knew that his time was short. He's been ministering for well over a year at this point. He knows that He's on the way to Jerusalem. He's on the way to His suffering. He's on the way to the cross. He knows it. And so He's he's taking His time. He wants to make sure that His disciples understand. Right? He's not focusing His attention on the crowds. He's been doing that for a long time. Now, if anyone has to get it, if anyone has to understand, if anyone is to believe, it has to be them. He doesn't have much time, and so he focuses on teaching his disciples. What is he teaching them? Well, Mark doesn't leave us to wonder about that either. It says there in verse 31, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. This is what Jesus is teaching them. He's saying, listen, you you got an idea who I am. I'm going to flush that out a little bit more for you. But I'm going to focus on why I came, what I'm here to do, and what that means for you. How are you going to follow me? Okay? That's, that's, That's what I'm teaching. If you're going to understand anything from me in the short time remaining, you must understand my suffering. You must understand my death. You must understand my resurrection. Okay? Basic tenets of the gospel. you got to get this. If you're going to be my disciple, you have to get this. This is the second great passion prediction of Christ. Though he has spoken of parts of it in other places, three other places so far. And if you put them all together, what you see is that Jesus, the the Son of of Man, this this self-designated title that He gives Himself that refers to this divine man who who, who has all the authority of God. 
and would offer his, his life as a ransom to purchase a kingdom for himself, that this Son of Man would come and he would suffer many things. That he would be rejected by the religious leaders of the day. And that those religious leaders, those, the best of the best of society, would hand him over. He would be given over to the hands of men and they would kill him. And after three days, he would rise again. This is an amazingly accurate prediction that Jesus just made here. I mean, he's, he's laying it all out for them. I mean, if you go ahead and you start in, in chapter 11, you read through the rest of, of Mark 16, that's exactly what happens. He gives detail. He gives you an accurate depiction of, of the course of events around his, surrounding his passion. And he does that so that they would know who he is and why he came. So that when it happens... They would believe. Here's Jesus, the divine man, this glorious Son of God. We have already seen so far that both heaven and hell have declared, have identified who He is. We have already seen that He is taught with authority, as one having authority over the law, teaching not like the scribes and the Pharisees and those religious leaders of the day, but with great authority. It astonished the crowds. He is the one who has proven that He has the power over sickness, over disability, over disease. He has, he has shown that He has the authority to forgive sins. He has the power to command evil spirits and they must obey. It is, this is Jesus who calms storms, who walks on water, who feeds thousands and thousands and thousands miraculously. This is Jesus who can raise the dead to life and who appeared before Peter, James, and John in all His pre-existent glory and they freaked out about it. Alright? He's proven who He is. He's shown Himself to be the Son of God. And yet, He's willing to lay down His life as a sacrifice for the sins of many. He who is first humbles Himself and becomes last. He who is king becomes a suffering servant. The one who is greatest is also the greatest servant. Now I wonder how this strikes you. I mean, Mark has given us an eyewitness testimony of who Jesus is. He has described and portrayed Jesus' true nature, His true authority, over and over and over and over again to you. Right? He's shown it to us. He's, he's made it clear. Jesus even uses His divine power to predict in accurate detail what no one could have predicted. Why He came and what is going to take place so that when he, it happens, just as He said it was going to happen, that you may believe. I mean, do you think about that when you come to Mark? And you read this account. I hope that you guys have been taking time here and there to read through Mark as a whole. So you can go back over where we've been and you can see where we're going and, and kind of look at this and see how this plays out. Jesus has just made an accurate prediction as far as the direction His life is going to go. And it's going to happen exactly according to plan. In ways that no one would ever expect. That's amazing. Right? He has proven who He is. He's showing why He came. And so that when it happens, you might know and follow Him in complete confidence because you know that His Word is true. He has proven it. So where do you sit with this? I mean, do you see His greatness? 
Do you marvel at the fact that the Son of God humbled Himself? The Son of God humbled Himself and suffered and died as a servant for sin. I mean, do you realize how much that cost? This is Jesus, the most valuable, the the most valuable person ever, right? The MVP, right? He, He is. You don't get better than Jesus. And yet He lays down His life as a servant for sin. He is the first. He is the greatest. He is the best. He is the most worthy. But yet He lays down His life for sin, for rebellion. So, uh, so the Cardinals are in the NLCS this week, right? And uh, nobody expected it, right? I mean, no one expected it. I mean, from the beginning of the year, everybody pretty much counted them out. In fact, back in, in August, everyone counted them out, right? And, and why? Well, because at the beginning of the season, they lost their major player, right? Albert Pujols went down from an injury, never really seemed to recover. Then there were all these other injuries that took place. Adam Wainwright gone for the season. I mean, everybody dismissed them, counted them out. They, they could not see how this was ever going to work out. But nevertheless, here they are. They're in the, they made it to the playoffs, and, and they're fixing to win it. Okay? I mean, this it, is awesome. You know, it's great. It's amazing. And, and part of the fact that they were discounted, don't shake your head. <laughs> we'll have words. Uh, you're a Cubs fan, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. And Jim has a great shirt for you. Yeah. God. I'm like, uh, anyway, back to the. Uh, but no one believed that it would happen. And, and part of that fact, you know, that, that, that you could come back after losing your most valued player, but here you are. I mean, that, that, that unexpectedness, that unpredictability is what makes it awesome. I mean, this, this is one of the greatest playoffs that, that I've experienced in my 33 years of life. I mean, I've really, really enjoyed this one because I've seen this, is, this, isn't, this shouldn't happen. But here it is, right? It's amazing because it's unpredictable. Now, this is a lame illustration compared to the greatness of Christ. Okay? The immense loss of his sacrifice and the absolute beauty of his death and resurrection for sin. But the analogy works in that no one predicted the Cardinals coming and making the playoffs. But Jesus predicted his own comeback. He did what no one would have expected. The greatest came. The greatest laid down his life as a servant. The greatest took it up again in glory. And the greatest display of grace and power in the history of the universe. You don't get better than this. Alright? This is ultimate. Nothing is greater than what took place. Nothing is greater than Him. Nothing is greater than what He has done. You just don't get better. And so that ought to sit with us. That ought to strike us. So how are you going to respond to it? Are you just going to, you know, sit back, nod off, just whatever? Does it really matter? Is it going to hit you? The disciples, they should have realized the glory and beauty and worth of Jesus. I mean, in what he just predicted, but they didn't. They couldn't see it at all. I mean, his second great passion prediction was followed by the second great misunderstanding of the disciples. Verse 32 says that they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. 
They still didn't understand why Christ must suffer and die. They still didn't understand the meaning of his resurrection. But they didn't ask for clarification. They kept it to themselves. It says they were afraid to ask. Well, they're probably afraid to ask because they weren't really going to ask. They were going to step in like Peter and say, No, that's not going to happen to you and get a big rebuke just like it happened to him when he opened his big mouth, right? Or, or maybe Peter, James, and John, they're still a little freaked out by what they saw up on the mountain, and so they're not going to say anything at this point in time because they're just perplexed about everything. No one really knows, but nevertheless, they don't ask. They're afraid to ask. And so they just go through life making assumptions. They know that they're not quite right about what, who the Christ is, but they're not going to ask for clarification. They're, they... They don't really want to know how this should change their life, what this is going to mean for them to follow. They just keep going with what they're doing. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, the one thing that Jesus is there teaching them is the one thing that they're, they're intentionally failing to learn. All right? This is not just ignorance coming to play here. Right? They are apathetic about it. They are still blinded by their own intentions, their own desires, their own purposes for Jesus, right? And they're, and they're still blinded and, and, and restrained by their own fear. Fear of Him, fear of, of how they might look in terms of other people. I mean, Jesus didn't suffer and die and rise to set a good example for us, all right? He is not simply a moral teacher. Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin. Friends, we have all rebelled against God. And we're not talking about, you know, breaking, we're not talking about individual sins here. We're talking about an attitude that we all have. An attitude of rebellion in thought, in word, in deed. This attitude that says, I want to live life for myself. Forget what you might have to say. This is my world. I am God. That's a direct affront to God. You can't just ignore that. You are playing God when you sin. You realize that. This is a big deal. We've all sought to put ourselves first. We have all sought to be the best. We have all sought to be the greatest. But that place belongs to God alone. That's His. It can be only one. But let me tell you guys, our sin is what separates us from God. Right? And no good deed, not all your religious efforts, no matter how moral you pretend to be, right? It's not going to get you there. It won't. God isn't great on a pass-fail. C-minus will not get you in. He is the standard. Right? 99.9% failure. Okay? You miss it one way, you've missed the whole thing. One strike and you're out. That's it. That's how it goes. So this is a big deal. Okay? You're not pleasing God just because you're here today. Right? You're not, you're not pleasing God just because you say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but then you, you know, your life's not affected by it. Right? 
If we're going to receive, if we're going to accept anything, if we're going to, to make ourselves right before God, we have to realize that that's completely outside of our possibilities. It's completely outside our realm. We cannot be good enough. We cannot be great enough. We cannot be better than anyone else. And that somehow gets us in. The standard is Jesus and Jesus alone. He's the only one that can get us there. And so we have gladly placed ourselves under God's wrath. And Jesus had to suffer and die to satisfy that wrath for our sin. That's why Jesus came. He offered himself as a substitute for sin to pay the penalty that you and I will never, ever, ever be able to pay. And certainly that we won't be able to pay back. He rose three days later, to prove that He was indeed the Son of God. He's made two predictions now. He's getting ready to make it one more that's completely explicit. And by His raising, it shows He was right. It shows so that we might believe that He's the Son of God. But He rises also to prove that God's wrath against sin has been satisfied and that all will have to be raised and stand before Him in judgment as King. We're all going to have to give an account to Him for our lives. And are we really going to say, well, hey, you know what? I didn't do everything okay, but I was better than Caleb. So I'm all right. (laughs) He's going to be like, so what? God's standard is Himself. So we can't be passive on this. We can't be just going through life, afraid to ask the question, afraid of what that might mean, like how I might be perceived in the eyes of other men. I, I, I can't, can't be just overwhelmed by apathy or my own selfish pursuits because I still want to be first, I still want to be best, I still want to be the greatest in my own mind. We can't be passive on this. We can't stand idly by like the disciples, afraid to ask the question. The only hope that we have is to repent of our sin and turn away from it to follow, trusting in, resting in, hoping in, admitting and honestly believing that Jesus is the greatest, that He is the best, that He is first. And be willing to follow after Him. Friends, He told you beforehand so that when it happens... You might believe. It happened. It went that way. That's how it goes. And so don't stand by in fear or ignorance or apathy or arrogance. Ask the questions. Alright? I'm giving you permission. If you have questions, you need to come to me, come to Jim, come to Caleb, talk to someone that's sitting next to you. But ask the questions. Alright? So Jesus is the greatest servant. Second, we see that what it means to serve the greatest. A true recognition of who Jesus is leads to a change of heart. It leads to a change of desires. It leads to a change of life. If you are truly, if you truly believe in who He is and why He came, then you will want to follow Him. That doesn't happen perfectly, but you want to follow Him. The disciples, they still don't really get it. And that fact is evidenced in verses 33 through 35. Jesus has been teaching them as they were going, and in verse 33, they finally arrive at their destination. It says, and they came to Capernaum. 
And when they were in the house, he asked them, Why were you dis- what were you discussing on the way? Apparently, Jesus wasn't the only one talking as they made their way, right? As they were traveling down the road. But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, I'm really kind of curious as to how this whole conversation played out. It's about 30 miles from Caesarea Philippi down to Capernaum, so there's plenty of time for discussion. You know, I'm just like... Did, was it was it like Jesus was talking and you know he makes this passion prediction he talks about his 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 rejection his suffering his death his resurrection and then you know sort of chronologically after the fact the the disciples are just like oh forget about that let's argue with one another that sounds good I'm better than you okay go uh, or or did it happen in reverse order were they kind of like arguing and bickering back and forth Jesus kind of overhears this whole thing and he said. Well, let me tell you, since you're following me, you know, I'm actually going to suffer and die and, and rise again, right? Sort of proving his, 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 uh, his role his, as servant, right? Or, or, or do these things kind of happen simultaneously, you know? I'm like, here's Jesus, and he's talking. You know, this, is, this is the Son of God, and he's talking about how he's going to suffer, how he's going to die, how he's going to be rejected, how he's going to be resurrected three days later, and they're over there doing this little sing-song, anything you can do, I can do better, right? You know, and it, I mean, maybe. I mean, this would kind of explain what, what Luke means when he said that this was concealed from him. It, it would be concealed from them because they were too busy arguing back and forth to listen to Jesus, right? Matthew, he adds that some of them were greatly distressed by what Jesus said. Some of them were paying attention. Some of them heard him talk about how he was going to suffer and die. And it bothered them. But yet it didn't keep them from arguing over who was the greatest. They just turned right around and they, they did it. Right? Uh, when Jesus asked them about this debate, they keep silent because they know they're in trouble. Right? I mean, you guys, you guys have all experienced that as kids, you know, you're, you're doing something you shouldn't do. Your parent asks you, he's like, hey, what were you doing? You're like, Mm-mm. change the subject. Um, you know, uh, yeah, we, we, we've all done that. We all understand. But, you know, they're, they're quiet because they know that they were sinning. They know that they were jockeying for position. And it's so ironic here because here's, this is Jesus. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. One, he knows your hearts. They ought to figure that by now. And they should have just been like, I'm an idiot. This is what I did. I was trying to be first. I was trying to be the greatest. But they didn't. They just kind of, you know, maybe he doesn't know. Um, but, <laughs> but he's talking about laying down his life. And they are fighting over glory, honor, and position. Like how petty. How absolutely foolish. But how much are they like us? I mean, we spend our lives seeking for our own glory. A lot of you are here as students. And there's a lot of glory wrapped into your next step. All right? Uh, I am amazed uh, by college towns and, and, and how this, this plays out. Uh, like, this is one of the things that fascinates me about Champaign-Urbana, is that this is a place where you go to pursue your own glory. You do. You really do. We strive with all our energy to be seen as first in our lives and in the lives of others. We seek fulfillment in satisfying our own selfish pursuits, whether they be pursuits of power, pursuits of success, pursuits for approval of others, pursuits of pleasure, pursuits of leisure, pursuits of comfort and security and wealth. 
I mean, you name it. But at the end of the day, we want to stand back and we want to look at ourselves and say, look at me. Look at what I have done. Look at what I have accomplished. I'm something. Do you see that? Do you see me? Huh? Do you see me? This is why I have Facebook, right? I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. We want to feel good about ourselves based upon our position, based upon something in our lives. And we, we jockey for position for that. And, you know, we even do that when it comes to Christ. We really do. We think that, that, that ministry is the exalted position, right? Like if you're really spiritual, you're going to go and become a missionary, right? If you're, if you're not, then you're going to go get a job, right? So, yeah, we, we do that all the time. I mean, think about how arrogant and ignorant it was for Peter, James, and John, especially. These guys were just up on the mountain with Jesus. They've just beheld his glory, and stood trembling underneath him, freaked out about everything that they just saw. And now, like two days later, they're down there again, and they're arguing, no, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest because I was up there, and I was still looking at Jesus through my fingers when you were burying your head, and you were covering your eyes. I saw you, John. I saw you. I'm the greatest. It's crazy. It's utter foolishness. I mean, they've seen his glory on the mountain. He has just told them of the unmerited sacrifice that he is going to make for sin, and they are arguing over, no, I'm better. I'm the best. I've got first position. I'm going to sit at his right hand. You know, we want, we want Jesus to serve us. We, we want... Um, we want to do the same thing they do. We, we come to Christ so that He will make much of us. Right? And, and we do this even when we come to serve Him. Like we'll come in and, and, and how many prayers sound something like this? Okay, Jesus, here's, here's the deal. This is the game plan, alright? I want you to get this. I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And I want you to come in and you cause those things to bear fruit. Okay? And then when you do that, then I will do this, 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 and this. And then you will go ahead and you will bless that. So that at the end of my life, when I stand before you, you will shower me with rewards. And in the presence of everybody, you will come up and you will say, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, let's be honest. We do that, don't we? Right? Let me ask you this. What if it doesn't go according to your plan? What if you labor for something over and over and over again. You've got these hopes, you've got these dreams, you've got these expectations. They're not happening. What if God's will for you includes suffering and disappointment and hardship and affliction and pain and loss and failure? Does that change anything for you? Let's be honest. It does. It does. I mean, I'm sitting here beforehand, and I'm like looking at the clock, and no one's sitting here. I've been here for two and a half years. I'm like, come on. Am I not faithful with Scripture? God, what's going on? All right? Am I not preaching your word? What's happening here? What am I doing wrong? As if it has anything to do with me. Arrogance. 
What if following him literally requires you to carry a cross? What if he gives you these things to show you how foolish your pursuits really are? To show that you are not first, that you are not the best, that you are not the greatest. Right? He's faithful to do that. But does that change things for you? Right? Does that help you to acknowledge what real priorities are? That he is first, that he is greatest, that he is best. And despite your failures, despite the way that things don't go according to your plan, and you're not where you thought you were going to be, that he is still faithful, that he is still the son of God who gave himself for sin and is saying to you, take up your cross and follow me. This is not the way you expected it, but take up your cross and follow me. This is not what you had hoped for, but take up your cross and follow me. Right? This is a lot harder than you ever anticipated, but take up your cross and follow me. Is he still worth it, even if you don't get what you want? He is. Verse 35. And Jesus sat down. This is a common posture for teachers in those days. And he calls the twelve to himself and he says to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If you want to be first, make yourself last. If you want to be great, then serve. Even the least. I mean, this is a paradigm-blowing pattern of the kingdom of heaven. In every way, Jesus comes and he does things, he teaches truth in ways that no one would expect. Greatness is determined by selfless, humble service, not by agenda-seeking self-glorification. All right? This is similar to his call. To discipleship, to take, to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow. He's not just saying, if you want to be first, then you need to try your hardest to be last. Because even in that effort, you're proving yourself to be unable to do that thing. You're still seeking to be first, right? He's not just saying, hey, you, you, you need to be first, so you need to be a servant to all. You need to be first, so you need to be last of all. And you're trying to do those things. Okay, I'm trying to be last. But in your pursuit, you're trying to be first. And so it doesn't work. The reality is the only, there's only one, right? There's only one who can be first. There's only one who is last of all. There's only one who is servant of all, and that is Jesus. He, by his very nature, is first. He is the Son of God. He is preeminent. Okay? But he's also first in that he is the only one who is able to do what he is requiring here. He is the only one who has that first position, but humbles himself, denies himself, and becomes last of all, becomes a servant of all, therefore proving without a doubt that he is first of all. He is the only one that can do that. And he did it by dying on the cross for sin. He is the firstborn even from the dead, so that everything, he might be preeminent, he might be the greatest, he might be first, he might be ultimate. This is a call, this call to be last of all and and servant of all is a call to follow Jesus. 
It's a call to find your identity in Him, not in yourself. This is a call to glory in Him, not in yourself. This is a call to find Him to be your greatest, not to seek greatness in other things. Though this is a call to all who would, who would call themselves disciples of Jesus, ultimately this is a de- declaration of who He is. Jesus is first. Jesus is last of all and servant of all. So then what do we make of this call? If we're not really able to do it, does, does I mean, it doesn't apply to us, right? Are we, are we just kind of free from it? Well, absolutely not. I mean, we're called to be like Him in every way. And by the grace of God working in our lives, we actually do become more and more and more like Him. Though not perfectly, that's our effort. Our goal is Christ. To know Him, to be like Him. Nor can we respond, well, you know what, I'm fine without being first. If I'm, you know, somewhere in the hundred thousands, I'm good with that. You know, like, as long as I finish the marathon, then I'm fine. I don't, I don't have to come in first. But remember, God's standard is Himself. He wants you to pursue Him with your whole mind, your whole heart, your whole strength, everything about you in full, like, just pursuit after Him. That's going to change you. That's going to affect you. That's the goal that he's looking for, right? Not, not just this, oh, I'll kind of halfway do it or I'll do it in these things and not others. No, he's, he's like, in every way, your goal is to be like Christ, to follow him, to be holy as he is holy, right? But ultimately, I think it really comes down to this. What do you guys think? When you hear Jesus says, hey, in order to be first, you have to be last of all and servant of all. What do you really think? Does that sound appealing? Do we jump up? Raise our hands. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Me, me, me? No, we don't. Let's face it. We don't really want that, do we? There's part of us that says, you know what? I don't want to be last of all. I don't want to serve everyone. I'll serve me. I'll serve some of these people who are like me, Right? I'll come in somewhere in the middle, I'll be happy, but I don't want to do it. But here's the thing, if, if serving or being last sounds unappealing to you, you probably don't understand how much you needed Christ to serve you. There's a part of you that's still not understanding the full weight of the gospel. There's a part of you that's still not really comprehending who he really is and what he has done. All right? We're still holding ourselves back from that. We're not seeing our sin for what it is. We're not seeing Him for who He is. We're basically still exalting ourselves. When you truly recognize who Jesus is and what He has done for you, how you are completely unable to save yourselves, and that without Christ serving you, you would be eternally lost, then out of the overflow, of the grace and joy that you are experienced, you want to serve. You're happy to serve. You're glad to do whatever because you get it. Your eyes are open to the glory of the gospel and you want it more than anything. And I'll, I'll happily be a fool. I'll happily be ostracized by, by people that I used to respect. I'm, I'm happy to seek and pursue and ask really dumb questions because I don't know what I'm talking about. But I'm going to do it because you matter most. I realize who you are. And I realize what you've done for me. 
Nothing at that point is beneath you because He is above you. Unwillingness to serve is a gut check. It really is. You can't call yourself a Christian and not live like Him. And so Jesus is the greatest servant and we are to serve Him third because He is our greatest. What Jesus does next is completely unexpected. In verses 36 and 37, And He took a child and He put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. And Luke adds, Whoever receives this child receives me. Now we like to ooh and awe over this because we really like kids. Kids are cute. Kids are fun. You know, our, our, our society makes idols out of children. You know, and, and, and we like to spoil them and love them. And, and so we're just like, oh, look at Jesus. Jesus loves the little children. You know, and we just kind of do that whole thing. But, um, and that's true. But that's certainly not all that this text has to say. We have to keep in mind the context, the historical context. In, in that day and age, a child is not significant. A child is not an idol like it is in our day where you spoil it and lavish it and corrupt it and make it think that it's, it needs to seek this pursuit of being first, being best, being, being ultimate, right? Be the greatest, right? Instead, childs, you know, children, they had this high mortality rate. They often died. You couldn't really kind of count on them. They, they, they weren't able at that point to contribute to the needs of the family or the needs of society. So they were kind of looked at as a drain, um, more of a liability than lovable. At that point, it doesn't mean that people didn't love their kids, but still there's just kind of this distance and this this deal like you need to fit in line with society. They weren't spoiled as much as they were tolerated, marginalized portions of society. Children were lowly. And those who would tend to children would be their mothers or their servants. Never, ever, 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 ever would a great rabbi come and serve a child. It is beneath him. That's the task of a servant. Yet Jesus, the greatest servant, takes him into his arms and he shows us that service and sacrifice for those who would be first extends even to the poorest, even to the most lowly, even to the marginalized. You know, as followers of Christ, we must extend the same love and hospitality to those that we consider unlovely. It's not just for those who are like us, but for everyone. When we love those unlike us, when we show kindness to the cruel, when we welcome the outcast, when we are warm towards the unwanted, when we are generous towards the poor, that is when Christ is seen as first. Then and only then is Christ seen as first. When we do so, when we receive such a one as this in His name, that's when others see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Guys, when we love people that are just like us, we look just like the world. There's no difference. And let's face it, it's really easy to love people that are just like you. Who is sitting next to you? Right? I'm guessing they're not very different than you. Right? Those are easy people to love. 
But Jesus calls us to love without partiality. To love the lowest, to love the poorest, to love the most marginalized. To be like Christ, we must receive all equally. That's the obvious conclusion from that text, but there's something more. I mean, remember that Jesus is talking to his disciples about who they are to be as followers of Christ. He's not suggesting that if you want to receive me, then all you need to do is be involved in social justice, right? That that's really all that it takes. You just get out there and you serve those in need, you serve the poor, the marginalized, you're good to go, you receive me, you receive God. That's not what he's saying. Mark has sort of a double entendre going on here. Jesus is using this child to illustrate the humility and lowliness that the disciples are to have. Right? This analogy applies to them. that They are the children in this illustration. In verse 42, when Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, he's clearly speaking of disciples. He's clearly speaking of those who believe in him, who are following him, not simply little children. In, in chapter 10, verse 24, he calls his disciples children. Matthew, in his account of this same passage, uh, of the same event, in, in chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, he says, Truly I say to you, unless you, my disciples, turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's pretty clear, right? Right? But it goes even one step further. If Jesus is speaking in Aramaic, then the word that is used for child and the word that is used for servant, they're identical. It's the same. So if you go back and you read it with the disciples in mind, it becomes clear that when you receive Jesus and the Father, you don't receive Jesus and the Father through social justice. Okay? But rather, who would ever receive what they have heard from the disciples to receive such a child as this, in Christ's name, will receive Christ. And whoever receives Christ will receive the one who sent him. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm calling you to be last. I'm calling you to be servants of all. You must be lowly and humble, just like this child. But I promise you, that those who receive you in your lowly state, those who receive the gospel that you preach in my name, will receive me. And when they receive me, they will receive my Father who is in heaven. You are my instruments to declare my name to those who have not heard it. And for that, you will be great. But this comes not as you seek your own name, but as you seek to proclaim mine. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14-21. through 21, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, 
God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of of Christ be reconciled to God for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God we don't live for ourselves we don't regard anyone according to the flesh God is making his appeal through us friends the greatest privilege we have in being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not simply the freedom from shame and the consequence of our sin. The greatest benefit that we can receive from Him is not a get out of hell free card. It's not your best life now. It's not gaining rewards in heaven. It's not God making much of you. The privilege of being a disciple of Christ is knowing Him and making Him known. The end goal is right there in verse 37. To receive Jesus and the one who receives Him. To receive Him, not not just Him, but, but the one who sent Him. This is the greatest treasure. This is the greatest blessing. This is the greatest hope. This is the greatest joy. This is the greatest that a servant of Christ could ever receive. Is God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is is ultimate. That is your best. He is first. He is the best. He is the greatest. And and it's only His glory, it's only the pursuit of His glory, and not your own, that is ultimately going to satisfy you. And so you give your utmost for His highest. He is your greatest. And so you seek Him to be first. As you become last of all, as you become a servant of all, because it is through His sacrifice that you have received all. This is how we are to understand Christ. Is this how you understand Him? Or you still try to treat Him as a, as a periphery in your life? Something that you kind of fit into a block of time? you look to Him when it's convenient for you or when it's going to serve you? Or is He everything? Is He first? Is He greatest? Though He is the greatest, He became the greatest servant. And having freely offered you the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life, Your desire is now to serve Him because you know that He is your greatest. He is your first. He is the best. Only then will you count the cost and take up your cross and follow Him as one who is last of all and servant of all. Let's pray together. Father, I I pray that our eyes and our hearts would be open right now. 
God, I can only imagine what's going through the thoughts and minds of, of people sitting here in the crowd. I mean, you know, this may be the first time that they've ever heard of this and, and maybe haven't really thought about, man, if, if Jesus is God, then, then He is the best, that, that He is the greatest. And, and that, that requires something from me. But God, I pray that we wouldn't be like the disciples who just kind of continue on in the same patterns of life, afraid to ask the questions but that we would seek you out. That our eyes would be open to the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ. That we would see Him rightly. And because we can see Him rightly, we can now see ourselves for what we are and how much we truly need Him. And God, I pray that when we recognize who He is and what He has done, we would, we would see what a privilege it is to follow Him. That this is not a burden. And to think like that, is to prove that we're still living as if we're God. So God, I pray that we would humble ourselves before Him, that we would see Him as first, that He would be greatest, and that our desire would be to serve Him. It's in His name we pray. Amen.